Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey, fans, as you know, the Super Bowl is right around the corner now. And if you're looking to place a bet on any of the sports going on, be sure to check out betonline.ag. It is the best and really the only place to lock it in from game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props. BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there's always the online casino, as you know, as well. It never closes. So go ahead and check out betonline.ag today. You take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Hey gang, Mike, Mark, and Barry with you today, and I'm really excited, guys, about this episode. It's a chance to feel nostalgic and recognize a man who, for years, contributed to our love affair with baseball, which for a lot of us really started with getting our very first baseball glove. And I remember, like you do, that smell of the leather and the phrases we saw in the gloves, like Heart of the Hide and the Trapeze, the Gold Glove Company, stamped right there into the leather. I remember treating that glove like it was the most valuable thing in the world to me. So, Mark and Bear, I'm so glad you guys were able to convince longtime Rawlings executive Jim Hughes to join us. Mike, there's so many special people in the game of baseball, including the players on the field. But uh, behind the scenes is Jim Hughes in representing a glove company, the Rawlings, that uh, was really meaningful in all of our careers. Jim Hughes is at the top of the list when you think of a guy that represents baseball. Can't wait to hear his stories today. Well, Jim, according to my math, which is always shaky, you're right around 50 years in this game and a milestone year for you as you retire. First of all, from all of us, congratulations on a wonderful race run. Uh, thank you so much, Mike. You know, too many guys say it all right already, but it's kind of funny as you... To look back over my career, you know, signing right out of high school and everything, and then lasting till I'm 69, 70 years old, you know, it goes back to that old Lou Gehrig saying, luckiest man in the world. And uh, it really is true sometimes. God, I just, the running through the thing, it, it, it dream comes true on both jobs, the professional baseball and Rawlings. Jim, let me, let me add my congratulations. Having worked with you for 38 years or so, um, it was always a pleasure to deal with you. Sometimes it's not when you're an agent dealing with people on the other side, but with you, it was uh, a pleasure to deal with and a, a friendship that developed and uh, the relationship couldn't have been better. You couldn't have been better in your representation of Rawlings and what you did for all the players that I represented. Well, thank you, Barry, and back at you too. You, know, you were a joy to work with also. And uh, from the player's perspective, Hugo, uh, I will say this. Um, coming from uh, a guy that expected really uh, very little, um, you gave a lot. And it wasn't uh, necessarily the gloves in, in the glove contract from Rawlings. It had everything to do with the personalization that you had uh, throughout the game. It was the small conversations that you had, and you spent time with everyone. Uh, everyone in that locker room, whether you were set up with your, your Rawlings gloves in spring training, uh, it was always a pleasure um, to see you, to have conversations. And I know I'm, not, I'm speaking for everyone involved in the game of baseball. You are first class, and you did it the right way because you knew as a player, 
there was a certain respect and honor that you had to have for the game. You brought that uh, even with your uh, career with Rawlings. So I thank you from all of us um, what you did in your career. Well, thank you, Mark. I really appreciate those kind words. And if I, I can say one thing, you know, as you said that, Mark, one of the things that always went through my head when I did visit the Padres locker room or the Dodgers locker room, I remembered kind of going back as a player when guys stayed around too long, you know, and they, <laughs> they didn't want to do their job. They wanted to be your friend. So I always tried to honor that, you know, what a player's wishes were. Go talk to them, be nice, find what they need, and get the hell out of Dodge before <laughs> I became a pain in the ass. You know what they say about this game especially is the memories are always more valuable than the money. And you guys are talking about these deep relationships you have with each other. And and you mentioned it too. You know, before you became the glove guy, you were a big league pitcher with the Twins in the 70s. And we are called Major League Beginnings. You've got a couple of beginnings. Let's start with your beginning as a player itself. And what you remember about your call-up in 1974, how you found out you were even going to the big leagues. Well, it was the end of the year and uh, end of the 1974 year. And, and I had, I've been pitching really well for about six weeks. So everybody hopes they get that first call. You know, your number one dream is just to get there. You know, number two is to stay there. And so anyway, I'm walking up one day, it's getting towards the end of the year and walk through the gate and there's our groundskeeper. His name was Scotty Ryan. And he's sitting on his little tractor and say, Hey, Scotty, what's up? So he says to me, uh, my nickname is Hugo. And he says, Hugo, come on over here. So I said, okay. He goes, listen, I'm going to tell you something, but you got to swear you don't tell anybody. And he goes, I need a favor out of this for telling you. I said, okay, Scotty, what, what do you need? He goes, well, first of all, Jim, you're going to the major leagues tomorrow. And I said, come on. He goes, Jim, I swear to God, but please. Our manager at that time was Cal Irmer. He goes, if you tell... If Cal finds out I did this, I'll kill you. He says, okay, so I told you, the number one thing I need from you is I need two autographs from Rod Carew when you get there. <laughs> and so the moral of that story is, so I, as soon as I got in there, our old, cham our old uh, trainer, a guy named Buck Chamberlain, says Cal Irmer wants to see you. Now, at this time, I'm supposed to start all acting all excited. So I walk into his office. He's sitting there. And... Uh, Knowing what he's going to say, I said, I just kept saying, act excited, act excited, you know, <laughs> and uh, Cal told me I put on a big fake show that I was, you know, that I didn't know. And that's how the whole thing began for me. And uh, Jim, who'd you call uh, first and, and who'd you contact? And what was that experience like leading up to even walking into that locker room for the first time? Oh, you know. The thing that was funny, going back into the lock. Oh, you mean in the major leagues? Or yes, yes. Oh, okay. Well, first I called uh, obviously my my mom and dad. So that that was a lot of fun. And you know, everybody's excited for you. You call your friends. And again, you know, Mark, you know, it's your dream just to make it. And there's so many guys that put their hearts out that just never even get that cup of coffee. So with that being said, you know, I go. So. Um, they, the, the, uh, Cal Irmer told me, okay, Jim, the, the, the twins had an off day on a Sunday for some reason. And they said, go home. It was, uh, we, we want you to do is go home Friday, get your stuff together, take home what you need, join the team Sunday night, and then you'll open up on Monday. So with that being said and done, 
you know, I went home and it was super fun being able to be, go home and then telling everybody, hey, I'm going to the big leagues and stuff. So and I got there that uh, Sunday night. And uh, when I get there, um, nobody's around. And so then down comes uh, Louis Gomez. And Louis Gomez was a utility shortstop. Uh, Barry, I believe, out of UCLA, correct? I believe yeah. so. And so Louis says, Jim, they're all dove hunting over at Tom Bergmeier's farm. And it's like, God, I get to the major leagues and nobody's here. Jimbo, uh, you walk into that locker room and uh, listen, uh, these are unbelievable names. You, you mentioned the groundskeeper wanted Rod Cruz autographs. Did he get the autographs, by the way? Oh, of course, of course. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's perfect. Uh, Tony Oliva, Oliva is in that locker room. Also, uh, one of the best characters in the game of baseball, Burt Blylevin, was also yeah. in that locker room. Uh, can you speak to uh, what that was like and the type of teammates that you had? Well, what was nice then, Mark, at that time, at the end of 1974, uh, Calvin Griffith kind of cleaned house. Uh, September 1st, he traded Harmon to Kansas City. Uh, Jim Cott went to the White Sox. Jim Perry went to Detroit. And so at, in that locker room at that time, as you mentioned, uh, you know, Tony Oliva's there, great guy, and Bert. And I, Bert and I rode down together on a flight in 1969 after I signed, and we had remained friends since. So seeing a familiar face was so nice. But there was a lot of guys on the team that I had played with in AAA too. So I felt very comfortable. And, you know, Mark, again, you know, when you get called to the major leagues, other players are so happy for you. You know, the other guy, the only guy that's not happy for you is the guy that's going down that you're <laughs> coming up with. And so it, it was, it was a lot of fun. And, and another thing that was kind of interesting about that, when I was in high school, uh, we played against El Segundo High School in the playoffs. And George Brett was on that El Segundo High School team, which I knew. So it was kind of fun not only to see your own team, but you go out the next night and there's George Brett out in the outfield who you can talk to and stuff. So Hugo, did you have any influential uh, veterans on that team? You did mention Burt Blylevin and your relationship that you had. Uh, anyone else come to mind that uh, helped you along the way? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, besides Burt, and I was telling Barry that, you know, Bert was not only good and, and great in a Hall of Famer, but he was the hardest working pitcher that I've ever seen. And God, you just had to, to be that good, but be the hardest working guy. You looked up to him for those reasons. And he was nonstop. Another one was Jim Cott. You know, there's a guy, in my opinion, that belongs in, uh, in the Hall of Fame. Hardworking, willing to help anybody. And he would stay, Jim Cott would stay three hours after practice to help you. And he was the first guy that I can recall that was really good on mechanics. And he was more than healthy, whether it was pitching, uh, you know, philosophy, or whether it was mechanical, uh, Jim was always there. And Mark, he went a couple years down to instructional league with us, just to work out. He, he had had an injury, but the whole time there, he was a pitching coach and spent more time. A lot of guys, as you know, go down there, they go get a workout and head to the beach in instruction. Yeah. But he hung around. He was a he was a great, great guy. Jim, first appearance in 74 in the big leagues, first win though in 75. And uh in 75, by the way, you picked up 16 wins on the year. Which is most memorable to you? Your first appearance, your first win as a big leaguer? Oh, I would have to say that my first win as a big leaguer 
was was the best. You know, it just the first appearance was awful good, but the first win, you know, you can't beat that. And uh, always go back and, and look at that. Just being there, making the team out of spring training in '75, and getting the first win. It's it's I will never forget. You know that first one, by the way. I don't know if you remember this, but you ripped off six straight. Yes, that was the first. The six. Do you think, hey, this is going to be a breeze? I'm going to be in the hall with Bly Levin and Cot oh. just the same. Well, you know, it's it's not too many times in my career, and you can talk to a lot of pitchers, and they'll tell you this. But there was times when you left the bullpen, got on the mound, and you said to yourself, "I'm not going to lose today." You just knew it. If you got one or two runs, you were winning. I'm not saying that to brag. I, you just had such great confidence in your stuff. Everything was there that you knew could win. But on the backside of that, Mike, in, in, when June started, I went 0-5. And, and it was just <laughs> the opposite. I mean, I went from that 6-0 and to 6-5 and so quick. It was very, very humbling, but it was great. So. That's gravity for you, isn't it? Yeah, you know. It's cool. And, you know, the, the thing that was really about that, is because, you know, there's that old time saying, oh, wait till he gets around the league the second time. So that's on the back of your mind, okay? But was what's such a nice feeling is June was a catastrophe, but I really started throwing well again in July. And uh, it was such a good feeling that it I just wasn't tricking them the first time around. There was something to it. And uh, so that was nice to finish the year like that. So 77, you wrap things up as a player. Um, before you move on, a couple of things I noticed. One, uh, you didn't seem, I didn't, couldn't find an injury in your history. And that's the first thing. Why'd you leave the game as a player? Well, I, I, I hung around. Um, what happened to me in, uh, I got a real bad case of uh, tendonitis. And uh, I never missed any time at all. I got a shot of cortisone in there. But after that was over, you know, there's an old saying in baseball, which you've probably heard too many times, that he threw it just as hard. It didn't get there as fast. And that was me. Man, I, I felt like I could throw it, turn around three times, and it was still going. And so now it's like, God, what do I do? And back then, as you guys know, there really wasn't a lot of weight training and different things to do to get strength back in that. And I tried. I overthrowing, doing this. But Man, it was just lost. And so it was never an injury of any kind. It just kind of slowly rode off in the sunset. So. Hugo, many of these um, podcasts we do, we, we, we talk about some of the elements that is pretty interesting. And a lot of that has to do with the baseball card. Interesting your transition away from a player to, uh, to your next career is Rawlings Gloves. But in a baseball card, you were wearing a Wilson glove. How did that evolve? And, and how funny is that uh, moving forward? Oh, now that now, and Mark, as we go, this is a true story. So I, after, on the final day of the 1974 season, I got to pitch. And I'm pitching against Ferguson Jenkins, who's 19 and 11, going for his 20th win. And, you know, the young rook. So anyway, I ended up losing the game two to one gave up a run in the eighth, pitched a complete game and figured, okay, because I'd never have a, had a glove contract. So I go to the spring training the next year and the Rawlings guys come, come up and I asked the equipment manager to introduce me to him. So he takes me out, introduced him to me, which were two guys I later got to know. 
And they said, sorry, we have no room for you. They looked down the list. I was totally crushed. So the next company to come was Wilson and it was Gene DeCoste. And Gene came in, tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, we have a glove contract for you if you want. Well, I was so happy. You know, <laughs> it, it, it's kind of like you make it if you get a glove contract, you know, it's like that first baseball card. So that's what happened. And then, you know, in uh, I wore Wilson for the two years, but all honesty, not just because of this show. My first love was Rawlings gloves. And if I may, I'll tell you a quick, funny story. When I was 12 years old, my dad told me, hey, uh, we're going to take you down to Sportsville. It's in Westchester and get you your first glove. There was a Rawlings glove for $14 and a Spalding glove for 12. The Spalding gloves had Roger Maris's name on. And I told my dad, I said, dad, I love the Rawlings glove. I love it. Well, my dad was a police officer. My mom didn't work. And he said, Jim, that glove is $2 more to, for the Rawlings one first set. He goes, we don't have that kind of money. Well, I got it. I was crushed. I still have that Spalding glove to this day, but Rawlings was always my favorite glove. Yeah, we always worship those that first glove that we have. And that's what makes it so special about this podcast is that everyone that's listening remembers that first glove that you always had. Um, uh, speaking of that, Jimbo, uh, the transition from a player to into the Rawlings, how did that all evolve? And, and tell us that that story that it really took you into this new realm of, of being with Rawlings gloves. Well, for, first of all, as a player, I always joy, enjoyed gloves. And I sometimes would uh, change out the leather strings for players. I just like that. I guess more than anything, I like the feel of gloves. And so anyway, uh, as I moved along and I kind of saw that, you know, I'd gone to Mexico, I did a few things trying to revive the career. And as you see the writing on the wall, I had decided, well, you know what, I'm going to be a coach. So I went to Cal State Fullerton. Um, I was in my last semester of school. Uh, the Chicago Cubs had hired me to be a pitching coach for their team in the uh, New York uh, Penn League. So it was right around December. I get a phone call from a good friend, ex-pitching uh, coach, Don McMahon, just a great guy. I had him in 1976. And uh, so Don said to me, he said, Jimmy, uh, I got a job interview for you. Don't blow it. So I, we laughed. And so I said, OK. So uh, a day later, I get a phone call from Frank Torrey, uh, the brother of Joe. And Frank at that time was the vice president in charge of marketing and pro department for Rawlings Sporting Goods. So he called me up and said, hey, Jim, Don said some great things about you that you can do this job. I'm going to put you under two interviews and they're going to be back to back. So uh, they're going to go into LAX. So I, I went up in LAX. I met with one guy for about two hours, met with the next guy later that afternoon for two hours. So I get a call about a week later. I'm on pins and needles, Mark, because I want this job bad. This is me. And so I get a call and Frank says, hey, Jim, I'm down at LAX airport. Can you come meet me this afternoon? So I said, sure. So I got, he says, don't even bother about dressing up. He said, shorts, whatever you want, just come as fast as you can. So I walk in there, Frank's in his hotel room. And first thing he says to me, man alive, he says, nobody's ever failed two interviews worse than you have. <laughs> These guys say you can't do it. And he points his finger at me. He says, Don McMahon is one of my best friends and I trust him. He says, you can do this job, so you got it. 
now I'm excited. I'm, I'm about as excited when, as when Scotty Ryan told me I was going to the major league. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, uh, Frank says to me, now, Jim, there's two guys waiting outside. He says, when you walk out of here, don't have a smile on your face because I don't want those guys to think you're getting their jobs. This is an interview that they're just getting. And so I walked out of there. I was the happiest guy in the world. I got to the, the, know the two guys later that failed me, which was always funny. But, you know, I, I look back on that now. It's such a happy day in, where two guys said you can't do it. But down deep inside, you got to believe yourself that you can. And thank God that Don McMahon did. Because here, 38 years later, I become a vice president of Rawlings. I have complete charge of the gloves and all those different things. And if Frank would have believed those two guys, it never happens, you know? So... <laughs> Well, it's a lot different when you're uh, when you're shopping with your dad for your first glove than when you are trying to get major leaguers to wear them now. And obviously, you got a little street cred because you're a former player. But it sounds to me, if I do this correctly mathematically, you and Barry kind of synced up your careers at around the same time period. You're both up and coming through uh, through the baseball injury. So, Barry, I'm going to throw this one out to you. How did you first run into Jim, and what's that relationship like between agent and glove rep? Well, I, we did. Our careers did coincide. I got started uh, with my first guys probably in 77, 78, 79, but things really got rolling with agents being involved in the early 80s, and that's when, when Jim was uh, first came on board with Rawlings. Uh, I, I'm not sure how relationships are with all agents, but I can tell you that my relationship with Jim was always great. I don't remember the first guy we dealt with, Jim May, but um, virtually uh, every one of my clients, uh, for the most part, except for one, which we can talk about later, which is Mark Grace, who was in Chicago, so he felt beholden to to uh, wear a Wilson glove because they were based in Chicago. But um, for the most part, all the guys, it just was a natural to deal with Jim because he was... Uh, uh, well, we always looked at, you know, got, some guys left occasionally uh, and decided they wanted more money from another company. But we would always look at quality of the product and service. And that's what you got from Jim Hughes every time. So uh, that, that relationship was a strong one throughout the years. All, as long as I represented guys, Jim was the go-to guy for for me, along with the people that he worked with. He had such a great staff with Kay Ranzini uh, and uh, uh, Barb Forstall and, the, and then Stevie Cohen eventually. But uh, it was always just a great organization and great people to work with. Jim, was there a guy you, you used to, um, or you would, was there a type of player you would look to put a Rawlings glove on, or was it just about getting as much Rawlings product out to the market as possible? Well, it, 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 when I first uh, when I first got to Rawlings, guys really didn't get paid to wear gloves. They were ju just happy to get two gloves on their hand, what, whatever it was. And so, you know, Rawlings has always had 50% of Major League Baseball players on the opening day roster. So that was our goal. And the thing that was good for me, again, so that's, this is 1982 when I started. And so a lot of the friends, the older friends had retired and become coaches. And so back then, Instructional League was the place to go because only the best of the best prospects went to Instructional League. So as you got down there, you had friends that were hitting coaches, this and that. 
So my first thing would be to check out those guys and then find out who the Mark Sweeney's of the world are going to be. And they're going to be in the majors and go talk to them. And that the agents really didn't become relevant. I'm going to say Barry a lot till maybe 1988 is when you, you know, uh, you had, I had an agent um, named LaRue Harcourt court and he had big players but the minor league guys really didn't it was the bigger players and so back then again I'll use Mark but you went to to instruction league you introduced yourself to a guy like Mark and if he liked you and he liked the glove bingo you had a you got it you got it done it was really that easy and you were looking at for the guys that just are going to be prospects and you know you just hope them to get to the majors and so I'll bet you at times through the 80s um, that Rawlings probably at times had more like 65% of major league players wearing our glove. And so it's just like anything. You respect where you're at. You respect the clubhouse. You respect the players, the agents, and just do your job, and you're going to be successful. That's the way I look at it. Jim, you know, if I ever did feel bad about dealing with you, it was because I felt we were imposing on you sometimes. As some of these guys became bigger stars, they became a little bit more demanding about exactly what they were going to wear. And uh, you've got some stories about some of the guys I represented, Bagwell and more particularly Biggio, about how they, of course, Biggio needed your help because he changed positions and had to change gloves and change back and you were always there to help him but he uh he sort of put the pressure on you to do it a certain way and well, i just wonder how you reacted to guys like that well you know the, see a guy like Biggio and bagwell the most important thing to them was the glove on their hand they knew that that glove was going to make them money not vice versa and so um one of the things taking a step back one of the things that rawlings did i felt always is they always duplicated their gloves. Every once in a while, it got tough. But the duplication, what they did, it was always the same. Mark will tell you, the, the leather was the same. The padding was the same. So if your glove wore out after three or four, you knew you were going to get another one that was just as good. And so I think on Biggio's behalf, what happened to Craig, I think the first glove he got was okay, but the company, whoever it was, couldn't duplicate duplicated and that's when he brought that little there was the cb7 and the craig Biggio 7 and so he brought it to me we sent it over to our plant and they came back with three that were all the same and i he was sold but again for him all he cared about was the glove now bagwell on the other hand as you know barry he used the smallest first baseman's glove of all time it was like 11 and a half inches and they couldn't duplicate that one either and he What he liked, he liked firm leather, but he wanted the padding a little bit softer, so it wasn't so hard to break in, and Rawlings did that. And I believe that one ended up being the JB6. So it's just, again, going back to it, just what they need, uh, get it to them as fast as you can. Don't lie to them. If you can't do it, don't do it, and you're off to the races. Well, typically, guys, uh, uh, explaining to our listeners what happens when you have a glove contract in spring training, uh, Jim would come down uh, and set up all all of his stuff. And as a player, 
the mentality is when you get something that is perfect for you in the positioning that you're playing, uh, I was an outfielder first baseman. So I needed an outfielder's mitt that I felt comfortable with. And also I needed to try to implement what was my favorite first baseman's mitt. So I would look at my teammate and say, Wally Joyner, um, pretty successful guy. I'll, I'll try his model, but it really has a lot to do with um, how comfortable you are. One of the my favorite stories about Jim is that this is what happened. He came down to spring training, and this speaks volumes to uh, the type of service that Rawlings provided, but also the little details that you would have. The special aspect of a glove is having your name on it. And once you have your name on it, it almost feels like uh, that baseball card. You finally made it. And why I tell this story, and it always sticks out in my mind when I hear the name Jim Hughes, is that in the minor leagues, I wore Rawlings, and I used a Sharpie because my two uncles, who were very important in my life but also played baseball as well, George and Walt Sweeney, they passed away, and I said to my dad, you know what? Dad, I'm going to always remember them because they meant so much to me in the game. So I bring my glove out, and uh, and all of a sudden, Jim sees the Sharpie on the top of the Rawlings uh, emblem. And it's GWS I put on there in, in black Sharpie, just a reminder of how special they were for me. And Jim, I, I don't know if you remember this, but you asked me, you said, what are those initials? And I said, it's, it's my two uncles, uh, and they were, they were so important to me. Unfortunately, I lo- I, we lost them in the last couple of years. I want to remember them by. And he said, do you mind if I stitch that in your glove? <laughs> the next nine or 10 years that I played in the big leagues, it was always GWS on every glove that was, that was made for me. And I, I, I personally want to thank you for that. It's the finer details, but it also is the importance of why we stuck together. And uh, with all of that story, Jim, I want to ask you, um, there's requests that players have. Uh, is there anything that sticks out that, that made you feel good? It, kind of my story, but also so many people had particular things that they asked for on their gloves. Does something in your mind stick out uh, when we talk about that? Oh, Mark, I think just like that, remem- remembrances for people. Uh, we do that. Guys would be so nice and say, can you do that? Absolutely. And, you know, that's kind of the stuff that you're, you know, when you when you walk away that afternoon and you can see by just putting GWS on a glove for a person, you really feel good because you knew no deep down deep inside that you did something for somebody that really mattered to them. So I think on a lot of the remembrances and that was great. Mark, one of my favorite things of all time is doing the little baby gloves for players as a surprise. And, you know, like if a player has a little baby, I'd always secretly find out what the name was somehow and make it a surprise that had just arrived in the clubhouse. And that was huge. The only problem with that though, is when they first started coming, man, the orders kept flying in from a kid 11 years old and so on and stuff. So yes, that was, you know, that was good. Interesting you say that, Hugo. Uh, my nine-year-old now, Gavin Sweeney, had uh, a birth announcement, and it was a Rawlings glove. So, uh, <laughs> listen, I, I thank you so much for that. Uh, he still understands. He said, Dad, you're doing a podcast today? I said, yes, it's 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 with Jim Hughes, the one that, that gave you the glove. He goes, oh, my gosh, I love that glove. We haven't used it yet, but uh, I tell you what, uh, that was something that was extra special and one of those finer details. 
Yeah, a lot of fun. You know, you know, I can add that uh, even agents' children got gloves like that from time <laughs> to time. Uh, uh, and, and that just points out uh, a point I would like to make, which is, um, and it's something that Craig Biggio said to me when I was talking to him about Jim. He said, Jim is part of the family. I mean, that's that's the, re the relationships that are built in baseball, whether it be player agent, whether it be teammates, whether it be your relationship with Don McMahon, which got you your job, uh, but the relationships that you have with the, the people that you uh, provided service to was above and beyond just providing service. And I, I hate to bring this up with Mark Sweeney here, but it goes to Craig Biggio talking about when his two boys uh, played baseball in Notre Dame, they got gloves. And when his daughter played softball in Notre Dame, she got a glove. And I know that opens the door for you to talk about your love for Notre Dame. So that might take us another hour to with you and Mark going back and forth. But uh, it might, it might go it's on something you've always that. talked about. Go Irish. Oh, for sure. I know I'm a big Notre Dame fan. And when, you know, when Craig called me that time to tell me that his son, first son was going to Notre Dame, I was, I was all excited. Uh, when we, I, one of my goals when I first got the Rawlings, obviously I was doing the pro players, but I got seven colleges to take care of and Notre Dame was one. And I said to myself, boy, Rawlings is gonna be sorry they ever did this because I'm gonna live back there. So what I do, Pat Murphy, who is now uh, a coach at Milwaukee Brewers, I got to know Pat. Pat left for uh, ASU and then Paul Maneri came in and Paul and I became great friends after that. And so when we would do the gloves for the Biggio brothers, whoever, and I know they were after that, but I always did them on a Friday night during football season. And it was a treat and a half just to spend that whole week in there. And that was the favorite thing I looked for years and years. And uh, now nah, there's nothing like being an Irish football fan, right, Mark? No doubt about it. And uh, go Irish all the way. Um, uh, listen, Jimbo, I, I love relationships and it's so important, as you know, uh, you need a right-hand man. And uh, I'll say Stevie Cohen because Steve Cohen, the owner of the Mets, no relation here, but Stevie Cohen is your right-hand man and he's going to take over, uh, take the reins for you as well. Um, talk to him this week. And he said, Mark, I can't tell you, 23 years with Jim Hughes. And not only is my best friend, but he is a huge mentor in my life. Um, the, the interesting aspect he told me is with all the fun that you had on the road, all the laughs, um, so many different things. He said, you know what? There's a lot of pressure on me, uh, to fill his shoes. And he set the example, right. And I, I think that is an aspect that when your coworker that's been with you for over 23 years, that's spectacular to hear. Um, how important was that relationship in your mind with, with Stevie Cohen and what he meant to you? Well, first of all, let me just say this. Uh, again, I'll go back. I am so lucky. Um, I'll get to Steve, but when I first came on board with Rawlings, I had Frank Torrey looking after me. Two years later, Frank moved on to the corporate and Ted Sizemore became my boss for 25 years. And Mark, if you know Ted, He's a he's an awesome guy too. Mm -hmm. Great boss, but best of friends. Mike Thompson, who's the current hit, same thing. New Mike forever, 
And Mike is not only was not only a boss, he was a good friend. So moving to Stevie, just like those other guys, not only were we, you know, workers in, in, together, but we were good friends. I mean, best of friends. And that made it so nice. So for Stevie, you know, the, his whole career there. By the way, I met him in San Diego. I was walking from the Seattle Mariners over to the San Diego Padres out in that field there. And he's out in the field. And I said, this guy's the funniest guy I've ever met in my life. He had me stitching. So I said, I said, you're going to be working for Rawlings. I just, cause I could tell the way the players liked him and stuff. So anyway, real quick, I'm sorry for this tangent, but for Steve, um, we hired him six months later, but then Rawlings had a freeze. And so he really didn't get the job for a year after that, but he's been so good over the years. He kept me going. He's very, very competitive, which I am. And so we would make little contests between us, between the East Coast and the West Coast, who could get this person. And it just, it made our job fun. And I'll say it again, Mark, as you know, he's one of the funniest human beings you ever make. So he used to call me up on Saturday morning for three hours and tell me about his Friday night. And I would just be in stitches. So I'll leave it at there. But it was great having a friend like him behind me that I could trust that worked so hard. Funny guy. Uh, he would be known when back in the day when you could do this, go in the locker room even after a game. And he said an interesting story, which it does not surprise me. Uh, David Wright, the, the former third baseman for the Mets, if he had an error that night, he'd walk into the locker room and sit it with, a, with a glove taped to his leg. And said, uh, are you okay with this? You're going to be all right? So that was the aspect that it was another detail of what Stevie was all about. Uh, interesting, uh, Hugo, um, for me, it was always remembering the awards, right? The Gold Glove Award, which is very special in baseball. Uh, you would always present these awards. Any of those ceremonies stick out in your mind? I know that's a that's a hard question to ask, but... Uh, you know, the consistency of what someone would bring uh, from the defensive side was extra special and always uh, being there to present them in front of the hometown. Well, you know, if, if you talk to a lot of people and Oral Hershiser was the first person to say this, you know, he, he talked about players and the one thing they all wanted was a gold glove. And so whether it was a Rawlings guy that got it or you know, a, a competitive company's player that got it. It was always a thrill to go down there and present that because um, all of a sudden you had a relationship with somebody. I, you know, for instance, um, you know, uh, uh, Clayton Kershaw. I never really knew Clayton, and when he won his first one, you know, just when I gave him that trophy. From then on, I had a relationship with him. It might only have been a hello, goodbye, but he greeted you. And so that was a good part of it. Um, it was a thrill for me also. I always wanted to see all the stadiums. And so to travel to Milwaukee, to Minnesota, to go back to Minnesota where I had played and make a presentation, it was something special. And from the guys in Minnesota, like Tory Hunter that won so many, they appreciated when somebody from Rawlings Sporting Goods comes, somebody that they knew travels all that way to make the presentation. It's a lot better than, you know, somebody just sticking out on a table and say he's the winner tonight. So I think that made it special too. One of the things that really is kind of funny, 
um, when uh, when Clayton Kershaw won his last award, it had rained all afternoon. And so I go out there, I'm in a suit, and it's it's on a table. I was giving away three that day. And so the trophy had turned, it was an all wood, red, all wood trophy, and then it went to a really, really heavy marble trophy. So the glove, the glove is on the table, and it's wet. And so the uh, PA announcer does the thing. It's on the scoreboard. And now presenting Clayton Kershaw's Jim Hughes. Well, I reached over. Because it was wet, I could not get it off there. And I had the grace. I'm pulling it towards me. And Clayton says, hey, you need some help? <laughs> so I started laughing. I pulled it towards my legs. Now on my legs, it's all wet. And I finally got it up, gave it to him. And uh, th th again, it was just another nice day doing that kind of stuff. You know, uh, Jim, uh, another note on the gold gloves is that several of my clients won gold gloves, uh, including Mark Grace, who won four. But Mark, as I mentioned earlier, Mark Grace was a, a he wore a Wilson glove uh, in the games because of the Chicago connection. So when he won his second gold glove, uh, I don't know exactly why this happened, but you you sent his trophy uh, to Mark in care of my office. I think he was living in San Diego at that time. And I open it up and I look at it and it's a right-hander's glove. It's the wrong <laughs> hand. So this was my chance to bust my friend, Jim Hughes. By that time, we'd been spending time together for 10 years or so at winter meetings and elsewhere. So I call him, I said, Jim, do you watch games at all? Do you know that Mark Grace is a left-handed player? And he was so mortified and please don't tell Mark, please don't tell Mark. And I, uh, I uh, offered to send it back and he said, no, just keep it. So I tried to keep it as a collector's item, but Mark uh, asked, uh, for it for his dad and of course dad trumps me so but yeah. that was one of the funnest times I ever had with Jim was just busting him with oh. with that mistake those are the kind of things Barry that it, it's it's embarrassing I I remember I was someplace and uh we opened up the box I might have been Arizona and I think it might have been Paul Goldschmidt well we opened up the box you know make sure it's okay put the trophy together and there was a catcher's glove in there it's like, oh, God, you're getting ready to go out on the field to present it. And somebody just in a hurry threw the wrong glove in there. And it's like, how do you get past this one? And I think what we did, I think that the Arizona Diamondbacks had bought some duplicates to put like on show. And and I think they ran up real quick, got the glove off one and put it on that. And then we ordered a new one from there. Hey, Jim, before we... Uh let you off and off the hook and let you go run and watch Notre Dame play. Would you indulge us and answer me three really uh, fun fan type questions? Sure. Okay. First one, you're telling us about how you put together these deals. You give either money or gloves to the players. They're very particular about the detail they want in the glove. You're a fan. You're watching a major league game ball hit to your favorite player. He makes an error. Instinctively, the guy, pulls his glove away from his face and stares into the palm of the glove like the glove betrayed him. After all the hard work you put in, as a fan, tell me what you're thinking when you see that happen. Oh, you know, uh, uh, what happens sometimes, Mike, uh, to come back, sometimes you'd see a screaming line drive, go to third base or even first base, and the ball would go right through the web, tear the laces. That's when you felt bad. You know, it shouldn't do that. But a lot of times, depending on how much you like the player 
the guy made an error and you didn't like him and he kept looking, you start screaming at the TV, it's not that glove, it's you. But <laughs> other times when they were really good, you'd say, oh God, what happened there? And you'd go back and look to see where the ball hit. It would be like, please, dear God, I hope it hit on the heel, you know, not in the pocket and things like that. Yeah, so it, you're definitely watching, especially in big games like playoffs, All-Star World Series, where you know so many people are watching. Yes. Nobody prays for an errorless game more than you, I would imagine. Right? <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> so for sure. as a kid growing up, we've all seen the Rawlings label forever. If, if uh, listeners right now even go to your website, they see just how far the company has come and colors and laces, and you can custom design them, even for the amateur player. Is there a difference in quality in any way, shape, or form between the glove that a pro player wears, a big leaguer, and the glove someone can buy in the store? Mike, great question, because even in spring training from the players, I get that same question all the time. Um, the, there is no difference. The gloves are, you know, a stock versus a lot of times special order, same padding, same leather, uh, same everything. The only thing that a pro player can get is that, say, for instance, he wants to, his glove to break in a little bit quicker. Like I could take out half the padding. I could put like no plastic piece in the little finger and things like that just to help break in the glove. And, you know, you'd get the guys that wanted that little extra help is that if you take half the padding out of the heel, that helps a lot. But what's happened over the years, it's really got shrunk. Guys don't seem to use that much anymore. You know, back in the day in the 1980s, I could give Ryan Sandberg a brick. I could, you know, the hardest glove of all time, you gave Ryan Sandberg two weeks. That glove was a pearl every single time. It was amazing to me what he would he could do with it. And so, yeah, so to go back, yeah, the gloves, the gloves in the store are the same stock gloves that we give out in pros. The only difference is that we do a heck of a lot more special order and players can tweak those to what they like. Yes. And you hit it too, Mike, on the colors. Man, a lot. The colors, it's even getting now. We haven't done it yet on the pro level, but guys are requesting colored labels instead of that old Rawlings red label that's been on there for years, which really is, I mean, that's our mark. Everybody sees it. You see a guy fly over the fence, Torrey Hunter, grab a ball. Of course, you know it is, but seeing that red patch, even though you can't wear it, you know it's a Rawlings glove. Where all of a sudden it goes to blue or green, it's like, who is that? So, yes. You know, I'm thinking too is the you grow up with seeing it red, then your favorite player it turns gold when they win a gold glove. You guys put the gold label, and then of course the platinum, which is the the platinum standard, right? Best defensive yeah. player in the league. Those are the only three colors that, as a fan, I personally look for. But it's cool just to see. My final question to you, though, from the fans' perspective, is now that you've set up just what we can purchase uh, ourselves. What is the best way to break in a glove? We've grown up shaving cream, oil, water. We wrap the baseballs in the pocket and sleep on them. But you're the expert. What do we do? Well, uh, the best way to really use a glove is uh, to break in a glove is to get it when there's hot weather and just start playing catch with it. Because when you have hot weather, you sweat on that inside and you keep pounding it. And to me, that's how it molds to your hand. But for secondary, going to spring training, and we all know early in Phoenix, even early in Florida, it's cold some of those days. And they pull that glove right out of the box. And 
what I would tell guys is just go get yourself like a five gallon bucket, uh, pour hot water as hot as can be, put your hand in the glove, just dunk it in that hot water for one 1,000, two 1,000, and start playing with it right away. And the reason I thought of that is just it's sweat. You know, it's hot. And you'd be surprised, Mike, how fast that glove would break in, even though it's a little bit moist. But two seconds is all because you you want it on the leather. You don't want it to get into the padding. I saw guys that accidentally left it in a bathtub overnight. And even though it dried in about a week, God, you were afraid mold would grow in that padding after that and stuff. So just really, really quick and go. But, you know, they, uh, guys put it in the you know, microwaves and they, they, they dry out their laces. That is a no-no because the laces will break. All kinds of stuff, washing machine. But, yeah, just a little bit of water and use will be good. Hugo, you should have told me this stuff too. I would probably would have had a few more innings uh, played instead of being a pinch hitter my whole career. Uh, the one thing that I, I want to ask, and I'm going to put you on the spot, and this doesn't take away from anyone else's relationship. Um, two questions, and they're both together. Your favorite player that you've ever represented and also the favorite current player that's in the game right now that you love watching to play. Oh, gosh. You know... Uh, my favorite Rawlings player of all time was Burt Blyleven, but that one kind of doesn't count because he rolled Rawlings <laughs> all that time. He was the best of friends. But I, I, I look over the years, there was plenty of guys, plenty of guys that I could not wait to see. Um, it, it's hard. Uh, I, the most fun that I've ever had with players, put it that way, uh, back in when Bobby Gritch came to the Angels, the Angels had... Mick Kelleher, I don't know if you know Mick, and then there was a guy named Rob Wilfong and Bobby Gritch. And every day, Mark, when they were in town, I couldn't wait to go down there because Bobby Gritch was the greatest. And Bobby Gritch got the most fan mail of anybody I ever knew, and 99% of them were for women. Yeah. And he used Good to read guy. those letters that they want. It was hilarious. So that era, those three guys, I get, get a plus two. You know, being I grew up a Yankee fan, and uh, Mickey Mantle was always my favorite player growing up. But I would have to say that the player after the years and what he did and stuff, especially with the glove, winning gold gloves, was probably Derek Cheater. Um, it, it just overall what he stood for, the way he acted, he was outstanding. And, you know, nowadays I have a lot of good friends, but I, you kind of look, I follow Trout a lot. You know, Trout's a nice guy, too. Very nice guy. For any of you players out there to listen to me, I, I, I love you all. But just as far as watching, um, one of the things I'm most proud of, I never lost Jeter. He always stayed with us. I never lost Mike Trout. Um, and that was, that was to me, I felt really good about that. Yes. So, you know, you, you know uh, Jim, besides the players that are out there listening, you got an agent listening to you who represented a lot of your clients over the years. And I figured we might get a call on one of them, but that's okay. I won't call God, no. Hey, Bar Barry was great. So Barry and I had this thing. Uh, Barry was always the last agent that I talked to. And so basically I ended up calling Barry usually about the end of January when all that time. And I say, okay, so Barry and I would talk for two hours and get the deals done in five minutes. And Barry always used to say to me, when you do these contract for gloves, Jim, just be fair. Just make sure you don't ever embarrass me. 
And Barry, I remembered that forever. It's the most key thing because as you know, these players go to spring training and they talk. Well, Rawlings gave me this. Well, Rawlings, and a lot of it is embellished. And so you really had to cover yourself. And Barry, you knew you could trust me. I knew I could trust you. And literally we would get those deals done in five minutes and we'd say, okay, see you next year. Or we'd see each other down the line and stuff. So Hugo, exactly. uh, I'm sorry, Mike, thanks. No, Hugo, I, interesting that you, you think of the Rawlings and the evolution over 100 years. Uh, it, it's, it's been spectacular of a brand in the game of baseball. Um, it was acquired um, by Seidler Equity Partners uh, June 5th, 2018. Why I say that is the owner of the Padres, uh, Peter Seidler, mm-hmm. um, said this quote about you, and this uh, exemplifies the type of person that you are in. He says, uh, quote, exemplifies the greatness of our company. Uh, That's high praise um, because that relationship, and you know the Seidler family has been in baseball for so long. Uh, What's your thoughts on on how that is expressed about your body of work and now uh, taking yourself into uh, retirement? Uh, it, It makes me feel good. You know, back in the baseball days, Mark, I used to say that sometimes working out when you wanted to achieve something that you'd go and you'd say, nobody, nobody worked harder than I did today, whether it was pitching and stuff. And at times you really felt like that. And when I got to Rawlings and after I was hired, I I used to say the same thing. Don't blow this work your butt off, you know, and I'm one of those guys. I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but uh, some people in a day thing and a single day, some people can get done in four hours for an eight hour days. It took me 10 hours to do an eight hour job and I knew it, you know? And so that's what I always look for. But also working for a company like Rawlings and I think not just because I work for Rawlings but people think of of Rawlings as baseball, official ball, official helmet, a lot of bats, great catching gear, everything that protective it was quality. And being so lucky for Rawlings to open doors for me. That's why I didn't want to blow it either. You know, it's almost, you know, when you think about it, Mark, it's almost like, I don't want to let anybody down. And so that's, if you have that attitude, but after a while, when you do get close to retirement, you think about how good a company was to you. And you say, here, you're 68 years old. You go, God, do I really want to leave? And (laughs) finally, when the answer comes back to you, right? Yes. You know, you got to let go. But I owe it all to Rawlings, and that's the truth. Guys like Peter Seidler, you know, the past owners, you know, the good thing, my two bosses, Mike Thompson and, and Ted Sizemore, God, the Rawlings was gold to them. And I was lucky enough all those years to work for people, to work for a company that believed in what I was doing. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They believed that pro baseball was our avenue to show everybody out there that we are the best. And when you got everybody behind you like that, and you know, it just it pushes you to do the right thing. And hopefully I did. So but Jim, I gotta tell you, I don't care what company it is and what brand name they carry. They're only as good as the people they have working with them and for them. And from the fans' perspective, they may know the name Rawlings, but the insiders, Barry, Mark, all the men and women involved in baseball at the pro level behind the scenes. They think of Rawlings, they think of Jim Hughes. 
And we really appreciate you spending some time with us. And we wish you the very best in the next chapter of Jim Hughes' life. I'm sure it's going to include ballparks and great storytelling. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much, Mike. Unfortunately, right now, it's just dodging COVID, you know, (laughs) not a whole lot of fun yet. But Mike and Barry and, and Mark, thank you so much for having me. Gosh, you know, I for the last night and a half, I've stayed up all night thinking, what can I say? How can I do this? How can I not screw up and embarrass those guys? So I appreciate you talking about the past with me. It really makes me feel good. Jim, I, I told you you were going to be good and that this would be fun. Uh, I want to say the last few things you said. Uh, if you worry about not doing things right, you always did things right. And you never let myself or any of my clients down. You were the best that you could possibly be. And I'm appreciative for the years we had working together. It was great. Thank you, Barry. Thank you. You know, if I can, Barry, going back to one of the questions that was earlier, uh, you know, two of my best honors ever was uh, Bert Blylev invited me to his uh, uh, Hall of Fame induction. We were friends all those years from right from the beginning. But when Craig Biggio invited me, it was strictly, like you said, kind of being family, doing what he asked. And so that was quite an honor when I got invited to that one and you were there. And not only to go there, but be involved in the parties and stuff like that. So again, I just wanted to say that and thank you, Barry. Well, buddy, we're going to wrap it up. Unfortunately, um, the first two hours of the of the podcast usually are the easiest, but these next two hours uh, should be tougher. So if you need to use the bathroom, come back with a meal or something, that's fine. Uh, but we'll start in just a few minutes. Dude, thanks, man. Hey, you, you almost had me. Thanks so much for checking out Major League Beginnings. If you had as much fun as we did, we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from. It could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.